I'm going to read to us uh, from the Bible now some verses from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. The passage that Paul is then going to be speaking on. So Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through to 20. And it's entitled in my version, The Shepherds and the Angels. That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Saviour, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognise him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about the child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen. It was just as the angel had told them. I'm going to pray for Paul now before he comes up to speak to us. So let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul. Thank you for his preparation in this past week. Thank you for what you have been saying to him, the words you have given him to bring to us this morning. We pray that you would anoint him with your power and that the words that he speaks would be the words you want us to hear. So bless us, Lord, and give us ears which are open to hear the message that you have for each one of us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Paul. Well, good morning to you all. It's a, a joy to be here. I want to thank Andy for leading our service and for Phil and Elaine who are doing all the techie bits at the back. I'd like to begin by asking you a question. Can you think of a time when you were really, truly happy? It may have been an event like an engagement or a marriage 
the birth of a baby, a new job, promotion at work. How long did that feeling of happiness actually last? Scientists say that they've solved one of the greatest mysteries facing mankind. Just what is the secret of happiness? The answer apparently is nothing as simple as true love, lots of money in the bank, or an exciting job. Instead, it can be neatly summarized in an equation. Happiness equals P plus five times E plus three times H. P stands for personal characteristics, including outlook on life, adaptability, and resilience. The E stands for existence and relates to health, financial stability, and friendships. The E, the H stands for higher order needs and covers self-esteem, expectations, ambitions, and a sense of humor. Our focus today is on joy, and my theme is restoring my joy in the Lord. Now, if you were to sum up the aim of many people, it would be to seek happiness and avoid pain. Even followers of Jesus can experience a lack of joy at times. That includes preachers and pastors as well. In fact, in order to try and convince others that everything is fine within our lives, we often put on a mask. We go into pretend mode. We don't want to let the side down, so when somebody asks us, how are you doing? We'll use that Christian four-letter word, fine. Even though we may be breaking up inside. I was reminded of a verse from Proverbs. Laughter can conceal a heavy heart, but when the laughter ends, the grief remains. Happiness is often temporary. Joy is something so much deeper. Now, the Bible tends to focus more on joy than on happiness. There was a lot of joy surrounding that first Christmas. We've heard about the angel's announcement to the shepherds. Here we have the promise of joy. In verse 10, the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all the people. Saviour, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, looking after a few sheep sounds quite idyllic, but the reality was very, very different. Shepherds were at the bottom of the rung in terms of prestige and status. They were looked down on and despised by many people. But it was to these people, the shepherds, that the birth of a saviour was announced. And this reminds us that the Christmas message is not just for the high and mighty, but the lowly, the humble, the ordinary people, people like you and people like me. The shepherds were 
initially terrified, but their fear turns to joy as the angels announce the Messiah's birth. After they'd seen the baby, we read that the shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. They were full of joy. These ordinary shepherds would never forget the wonder of seeing Jesus. Their lives would never be the same again. They had a personal encounter with Jesus. I wonder if that's your experience. Have you had a personal encounter with Jesus? Do you have a connection with Jesus as your saviour and the leader of your life? Those shepherds were full of joy. I want to move on to the announcement from Simeon. Here we have the prophecy of joy. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die when he saw Jesus, before he saw Jesus. Joseph and Mary take him to the temple for the Jewish religious ritual of redemption when he was 40 days old. His mother was also there for her Jewish ritual of purification and cleansing. Simeon was moved by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple courts to meet Jesus. He had one item on his bucket list, to see Jesus before he died. He's waited years and years, and now his prayers have been answered. God has kept his promise, and Simeon has now seen the Messiah with his own eyes, and he's ready to leave this earth. In verse 34, we read, Then Simeon blessed them. He said to Mary, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. Jesus would divide people into two camps. One occasion he talked about having a sword. That wasn't a sword to use in anger. It was a spiritual sword that would separate people into two groups, those who would accept Jesus and those who would ignore and reject him. But what about us if we're a follower of Jesus? Well, Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Shepherds and Simeon saw Jesus with their physical eyes. We haven't yet had that privilege. We see Jesus through our spiritual eyes of faith, but if we believe in him and love him and trust him, Peter says we're filled with an inexpressible joy, a glorious joy. For a follower of Jesus, we will have known the joy of being loved by God, although we don't deserve it. We'll have known the joy of experiencing forgiveness, of being part of God's family, of knowing God 
as our Heavenly Father, of being a child of God, being part of the church family, the joy of having a guaranteed, secure future. I've mentioned that the word happiness isn't used that often in Scripture, but the word joy is used 60 times in the New Testament. The word rejoice, 72 times. Some of you may have heard of a a man called Ernest Gordon. He was a prisoner of war in the death camps on the infamous Burma Railway, which he recounts in his book, Miracle on the River Kwai. 80,000 people died in the construction of that railway. Ernest Gordon set up a small group to discuss the Christian faith. He describes joyless Christians as people who have managed to extract the bubbles from the champagne of life, leaving it insipid, flat, and tasteless. Now, your experience may be different to mine, but in my experience, rejoicing and gladness are not the first images that come to mind when people think of Christians or indeed of the church. Now, this shouldn't be the case. We should be the most joyful people on the face of this planet. So why is it that so many Christians lose their joy? When they first become Christians, everything is fantastic. But as time goes by, there can often spring a leak and the joy drains out of them. There are a lot of killjoys in life, things that were robbers of joy. Satan is a thief and a robber and wants to use every trick in the book to robbers of joy. Here are a few examples of killjoys in life. Worry can rob us of joy. Worry takes the joy out of life and robs us of peace. Worry is exhausting. It can affect our face, it can affect our health, our whole attitude and outlook on life. Jesus said, don't worry. Three times, don't worry. We don't need to worry because God knows our needs. We don't need to worry because God is in control. Secondly, it may be a critical spirit critical attitude towards others. Instead of encouraging others, we criticize them. Instead of building them up, we find ourselves knocking them down. Also, if we're on the end of criticism, it can squeeze the joy out of our lives. Guilt can rob us of joy. Many reasons we can feel guilty. Maybe a sense of failure. As we look back on our lives, we, we don't feel we've achieved. We've underachieved. Maybe we can feel guilty because we look at other people and we're not as spiritual, perhaps, as we think they are. Maybe we feel guilty because of unconfessed sin. So how do I recover and rediscover my joy in the Lord? 
Well, the first thing is to ensure that I'm right with God. Ensure that I'm in a right relationship with God. There are no barriers between him and myself. It may be that you've lost your way as a Christian. Perhaps you do feel a failure in your Christian life. The reasons can be many and varied. If we've lost the joy of his salvation, maybe it's because of unconfessed sin in our lives. David is described as a man after God's own heart. But we all know he gave in to temptation. He was very much aware of his own sin, and we see this in Psalm 51, after he had slept with Bathsheba and made her pregnant. But he was also aware of God's forgiveness. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David has been robbed of joy because of his own sinful actions. So he pleads with God, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I want us to note that David's sin didn't prevent God from using him in the future. He did confess his sin. He did repent of his sin. He did receive a fresh start from God, yet the baby born out of that illicit relationship died. David married Bathsheba and she gave birth to another son, Solomon, who became David's successor as king. Don't think because you have sinned in the past. Don't think that because you've let God down that he's finished with you. God is the God of the second chance, the third chance, the nth chance. So we need to ensure, first of all, that we're right with God. Secondly, we need to face our trials with joy. James 1 verse 2, we read, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. The New Living Translation translates that verse as, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Notice we can expect trials. It's not, it's not if the trials come, but whenever the trials come. The Christian who expects his or her life to be easy is in for a massive shock. On one occasion, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. We can expect trials. We can expect different sorts of trials. When James talks of trials of many kinds, those two words, many kinds, come from a Greek word that means many colored or variegated. Trials often appear out of nowhere, different colors, varying shades of gray or even black. Some trials last for a little time, but others stay for longer. So James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials. Consider it pure joy when you, your wits end, 
and wondering what else life will throw at you. Consider it pure joy when you're lonely. Wish you had someone to share your innermost thoughts with. Consider it pure joy when your finances may be in a mess through no fault of your own. Consider it pure joy when you're depressed and nobody else seems to really understand. Consider it pure joy when you're in chronic pain and there seems to be no relief in your situation. It may be that things are going really well for you at the moment. Well, thank God. It may be you're in the midst of a trial or some kind of trouble. Maybe you need to think about the trial you're currently facing. Are you able to consider it pure joy? It's certainly easier said than done. It's almost as if James is saying, this is good news for modern masochists. Just laugh in the face of adversity. Of course, he's not saying this at all. The word consider is an accounting term. It means to reckon or to evaluate. James is saying that when we face the trials of life, we must evaluate them in the light of God, what God is doing in us and what God is doing through us. James goes on to say there's a reason for trials. There's a reason God permits you to go through a time of trouble. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Our faith will always be tested. Satan tempts us to bring out the worst in us. God tests us to bring out the best in us. We all go through trials of different shapes and sizes, but God can use them to bring us into a maturity. His purpose is so much bigger than our problems. He can turn trials into triumphs if we allow him to develop our character. The choice is ours. Am I going to be a victim or am I going to be a victor? James closes this section of his book with a beatitude. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. A day will dawn when we leave this world and enter the glory that's been prepared for us if we've chosen to follow Jesus. Those who have persevered will be awarded a crown of life. One of these days, we're going to leave the land of the dying. We're going to go to the land of the living. We're going to go to a place where there's no more death, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. So how do I re rediscover my joy in the Lord? Ensure I'm right with God. Do I have a personal relationship with God? Have I trusted in the unfinished, the finished work of Jesus on the cross? The Bible says, if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord 
Believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead. Then I'll be saved. Am I able to face my trials with joy? With joy. At this time of year, we wish each other a happy Christmas, and quite rightly. But remember that God is not a killjoy. He wants us to enjoy the fun, the food, the festivities of Christmas, but there's so much more than that. He longs for each of us to enjoy a relationship with him, not just at Christmas, into the new year, and for the rest of our lives. He wants to fill our lives with joy, a joy that will last. I finished this morning with a prayer, a prayer that Paul prayed for those at Rome. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.